Welcome to the Zeitgeist 19 curated podcast, exploring the spirit of now through the lens of art and sustainability. Your hosts are Farah Piria and Elizabeth Zhovkova. The first episode of our new season that is grounded in many conversations capturing this moment of history with its focal point on the relationship between individuals and technologies is an intimate chat with three curators of the Ewerk Lickenwalde, Helen Turner, Adriana Tranka and Katharina Worf. The all-woman curatorial team of the world's first renewable energy art institution takes me on a journey to a small town 30 miles south of Berlin, where this institution of future that explores ecological and social-cultural practices is located. Join us as we discuss the concepts of slow curating and the fundamental role of a curator in today's society. Ladies, thank you so much for your time and doing this conversation with me. Uh, I will immediately move on to my first uh, question. Can you please tell us how Ewerk Luckenwalde, the world's first renewable energy art institution, was born? What makes it unique and how would you sum up its core mission? So um, we founded Ewerk Luckenwalde in 2019 uh, together with my partner, who is an artist. He's called Pablo Wendell. And this was kind of born really out of financial precarity. So Pablo was practicing um, as an artist for the last 10 years with the material of electricity. Um, And that was born because he wasn't able to pay his own electricity bill. He found himself in this very precarious position as an artist where he's being invited to exhibit internationally, but not really being paid adequately. And so he got himself into this very difficult situation where he couldn't afford his utility bill. And so he decided to start generating his own electricity. And then this kind of was a eureka moment for him because he always worked this kind of the ephemeral, the immaterial. And so electricity had this really kind of seductive uh, quality to it. And then he started creating sculptures and interventions and happenings um, that all generated ecological electricity, which he uh, coined as Kunstrom, which directly translates to art power. Started feeding that into, into the national grid and distributing it to clients throughout Germany. So in a sense, he was creating his own kind of financial autonomy. Um, And then his client network sort of grew and grew, and he had up to 40 clients throughout Germany who were all powered by Kunstrom. So their studios were powered by Kunstrom or their galleries or museums or Kunsthallers. And then he was at this moment where he wasn't able to produce enough electricity for the demand of electricity. So he started looking for a form of fossil fuel power station in order to transform into an ecological Kunstrom craftwork. And he was led to Luckenwalde, where he found this incredible marvel of um, a brown coal power station that was built in 1913. And he just completely fell in love with it and went into search to try and find the landlord, went to negotiation for over two years to see if he could even somehow try and afford this building. Um, and he managed to. And then in 2017, he took ownership of the building and started the work to try and reactivate it as a power station, but this time ecologically using locally sourced spruce wood chips. And how he did that was by working with a lot of the men who used to work here when it was a brown coal power station. So many of them are in their 70s or their 80s, learning from them how the power station actually functioned. You know, was this possible to reactivate this kind of dinosaur mechanical infrastructure? Um, and they really believed in him. They were his biggest advocates. They were like, of course it's possible. He had laid dormant for 30 years. Much of the power station was underwater. It was a real kind of relic. Um, and then in 2019, he finally managed to lurch this 
power station back into action. He uh, reactivated the conveyor belts that they used to transport brown coal, which had been laid dormant for 30 years and was original in 1913. And now that transports wood chips up into the kind of bunkers of the engine room, this historic engine room, and then down into the basement where it goes through a process of wood gas. Um, and then that heats the whole building. So the excess waste heat produced from the wood chips heats the whole building. And then the rest of the energy is then fed into the national grid um, to clients throughout Germany. And it also powers the power station here. So the contemporary art program that we run is entirely powered by Kunstrom, which is 100% carbon negative electricity. So we were really interested in this, you know, what can the art institution of the future look like? How can our institutions start taking accountability for their carbon impact? Um, and how can we do that 100% ecologically? And I think it's quite important to note that, it's, that it is artist-led. You know, this idea was really born out of kind of an artistic vision. Um, and I think that's really important to have artists at the core of institutions. I mean, we always say that artists are our best consultants of how we want to kind of institutionally develop um, yeah, so I guess our core mission is sort of pioneering alternative ecological and economic change to the cultural sector, but then still maintaining a very kind of high caliber program. How can we remain international? How can we be ambitious in our programming yet still be accountable for our carbon impact? So that's eVerk in a nutshell, basically. <laughs> Thank you, Helen. How fascinating are the aspects of artists being at the core of the institution and the point of slowing down? I would like to focus on the latter. In the past few decades, the art world has been steadily changing its curatorial framework, embracing new methods to facilitate deep connections to community, locality, and reciprocal relationship between art and public, something that we call slow curating. Um, so slow is not about time per se, but about connection and the global pandemic only accelerated this tendency. As a curator, I would like to talk with you about the concept of slow curating and what curatorial methods your institution, um, as you call it, the institution of future, is implementing in a sustainable approach to art programming. Um, I guess that will be me, Farah. Um, so I will tackle this question about slow curating and sustainable sustainability approach um, to our art programming. So uh, firstly, I think, um, you know, this is fundamentally interlinked, uh, you know, slow curating and sustainability. They are in tune with each other. Sustainability, for example, is the spine to everything we do here at EVAC. You know, it's ingrained within the institution. So we focus on bringing sustainability into every aspect of EVAC, whether this is, you know, as Helen already pointed out, being powered by the energy we produce on site or the food we serve or the materials we order for the exhibitions or the people we are working with, you know, or the companies, local companies, or whether we are advocating for taking train journeys instead of planes. So this is sort of in that regard slow curating is very much a natural progression and born out of this ethos as we understand it you know slow curating is for us i guess about reflecting on every step we are doing when it comes to exhibition making to commissioning to hosting events you know sustainability is integral or in all of it 
But maybe I will explain a bit more on how we arrived at this point of slowing down, which is kind of an interesting story, because I guess the motivation of slowing down uh, came two and a half years ago. I remember this quite vividly, vividly this, because this is when my daughter was born, but it was during the first lockdown. And we as the curatorial team and, you know, the extended EVAC team, we had a lot of discussions online, you know, and the conversations evolved and evolved on how we should respond and how we how to move forward in these very very strange times when we were all set at home and had only limited access to friends family and travel and culture i suppose so we stepped back and 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 looked at how we are feeling personally and collectively and decided decided to take things slower you know and in 2020 like many others we went online and hosted a series um called artists as consultants you know but also use this um period of this year or this like 10 to 12 months to to reflect internally um you know on ourselves and what do we really value um where do we see the value so we used in in that essence, really the special circumstances brought by the pandemic to start this program of sustainable declaration or also called slow curating. And at the time we invited Lucia Petriusti, um, you know, this wonderful curator based in London, you know her well. And uh, she used to be the former Serpentine Gallery curator on the general ecology program and now set up her own institution for radical ecology. So, you know, as you hear, ecology is really at the heart of everything she does. So we invited her to create a second uh, edition of Power Nights. And that really felt appropriate because the, our first edition of Power Nights was a one day event, you know, which at the time felt, you know, quite poignant, but which didn't feel so much necessary, felt appropriate after, you know, we had this looking back and the lack of access to culture we experienced during the pandemic. And so we, we had a lot of discussions with her and we were meant to kick off this whole Power Night series with Sun and Sea, the beach opera, you know, and they were just to embark on, on a worldwide tournée as well with that piece. And we had to have several moments where we had to decide, okay, we have might have to postpone it because it's just not suitable to show this work at this very much time. So it was very much about being flexible, being adaptable. So we needed to think about a new model, you know, that is adaptable and that we can extend into a series over over time so power nights at the end power nights being mothers it was called the whole exhibition took place across six chapters over 12 months so from july last year to july this year um and it was really a test bed for this sort of ambition of slowing down you know and it was as i said already before slowing down as a reflective practice to create a more healthy approach to working, whether this is in the team, whether this is with artists, whether this is with the wider community. But, you know, we all have worked in a range of fields such as commercial galleries. So everything occurs at such a fast speed and everything is so saturated, almost that you feel like you're constantly missing out. And so, you know, 
there was an act sort of again going against this fast pace of exhibition making and against the constant call to deliver new things. So in that sense, yes, it was literally about slowing down and offering more time, but also asking us what happens if we just slow down and did things with more consideration from every angle. Maybe this could lead to a more grounded, perhaps deeper experience. But most importantly, it was about programming in an engaging way, not just about giving more time, you know, involving the audience, the community, taking the visitors on your hand, taking them on a journey, you know, broaden their understanding of this growing exhibition. They could come back anytime and it looked entirely different or something new was added. So it was about how can we stay relevant and interesting to them? How can we foster a dialogue with the existing and new communities around us. So we hosted various events across the exhibition process, live performances, guided tours, talks, and very beautifully, a summer fest, which aligned with the finissage of Power Nights, which brought together the local community and an international art crowd. It was magical to see how they all had the shared experience. And so, so EBEC is very much about, you know, making art accessible and, and not just placing art in an exhibition space, creating a vibrant and active space, a space that is constantly in flux. So, but I must admit that obviously things didn't happen all after the book. So it was a learning by doing approach, you know, and during that 12 months project, we worked with local experts such as a regenerative farmer or a soil ecologist or had discussions with the local mill in, in Luckenwalde about their organic products. So to get a better understanding of the place, but also to involve them to create more context-specific context art projects over a longer period of time. So, and that brings me to my last point, you know, it was very much about collaboration. So allowing more time to nurture the relationship with the artists, giving them time to gain, gain a better understanding, offer them a research phase. And I guess within our own means, you know, Adriana, Helen and I, we really <laughs> turned into collaborators, almost into research partner, which for me is the best thing because you can learn about, you know, how an artist mind ticks. Um, yeah, and I guess crucially of it all, we really made sure to give the newly commissioned pieces new life or a new context or longer lifespan by, you know, seeking partner organizations. Um, so some of the works were showed at different places like the Palais de Tokyo, the Gardenia Biennial, also curated by Lucia, Peter Justi and Philippa Ramos. So yeah, it's it was very much about all these different um, aspects, but also acknowledging you know, it's it's a test bed. It's learning by doing. Thank you, Katerina. Uh, couldn't agree more with you on that missing out feeling back in the days, especially for someone living in London. I remember those exhibition opening uh, marathons, five, ten uh, openings a day. You could never really digest any of it. Katarina, you mentioned very special projects. Um, can you give us some more examples of other exciting previous projects that reflect on the institution's ethos? Yes, of course. Um, I actually 
ha I'm going back to one and um, maybe the others can chip in. But I think, you know, the most memorable one was uh, very much um, the first Power Nights 2019 when we opened the doors to the public for the very first time, you know. Uh, it was the moment when uh, Pablo turned, you know, Pablo Wendel the, turned the engines on for the first time and therefore started to produce the energy on site. And all the artists invited, all their, their artworks were basically powered by this um, energy generated on site, which was so, um, um, so joyful to see, uh, you know, this, the context they celebrated and the performers were invited to, to map the raw spaces with their bodies, their objects, soundscapes and immersive installations only for one night, as I said before, and they created these life environments and included even the nearby Bauhaus, derelict Bauhaus swimming pool and, and, and the turbine hall and, and all across all these commissioned um, um, spaces. And a second one I'd like to mention is um, the archive show. So, you know, um, put together by my colleague Adriana. And, you know, that was a show really about how to engage with the past and the history of the place also during a very difficult time the pandemic so the artists were um, commissioned to develop new performative works and material scores which were eventually added to the public archive of EVEC and to with a few to complete collection in the long term you know so um the project really offered um, artists an opportunity to de develop a commissioned work during the pandemic when they not even had the opportunities to show their work. You know, they had limited access to find a space, being able to show it. And yeah, the commissions were site specific and they took their cue from the century old EVAC archive and were performed at EVAC and perhaps will be re-performed in, in the future. So, and, and within, within that process, we also worked with um, contemporary witnesses like Bernd Schmiedel, who lives in Luckenwalde, and historian Bert Hoppe, you know, to explore the contents of the archive further, with, which stretches over like 100 years of history, of German history, ingrained within that building. So that was a fascinating process. And maybe one final work. The, the sun and sea work, the one I mentioned before, the beach opera, which um, was awarded with the Golden Lion at the Venice Biennial in 2019, you know, for the installation in the Lithuanian Pavilion. We showed this piece last year, and I guess it was very much about the message, which was so in tune with our ethos at EVAC, and also the way we realized it, it or we staged it, you know. The performers, they warn in their songs about climate change and ecological disasters. But what was quite, quite um, strongly felt was, you know, that it was occupying this very empty space, this, uh, this Bauhaus Stadtbad in Luckenwalde, and was completely powered with CO2 neutral electricity, which was produced in the nearby building at EVAC. So, 
it was all through a wood gasification technology. And, and we laid Pablo and his team laid pipes, hose pipes over to the Stadtbad and sort of, you know, built a self-built and recycled underfloor heating in the sun. So the, the waste heat from EVAC warmed water, which was then transported transport to the Stadtbad. So no other heating like fossil fuels was necessary, which was quite quite something special at the time. Um, and I think, yeah. And I guess the last the last Power Night already expanded a lot on, you know, the one where we sort of tested um, about slowing down and all the things I had mentioned already. So I won't go into that much detail. <laughs> Thank you, Katerina. Yes, I remember the Sun and Sea Opera performance tackling the topic of an exhausted earth. I was blown away by it in Venice in 2019 and how very wonderful that uh, such crucial work continues to live by means of your platform. Uh, we find ourselves seeking for art practices that meaningfully grapples with the key issues of our polarized times, from battles over identity and representation to the way we reconcile ourselves to our unique past practices that address racism, sexism, environmental and economic crisis, the widespread refugee emergencies. What are the roles of art institutions and the artists in this? Um, I'll be taking that one, Clara. Well, first of all, I want to say I really appreciate the question, especially the, the intro of it, how the audience is now, the, like the uh, yeah general public is now very attentive to what culture delivers. Basically, I think the audience is not taking bullshit anymore. Like they're really critical and they they spot they spot you if you you're not um, you know fair or you haven't thought things through. So in this environment, I guess it's really exciting to be working. Um, but you were asking about institutions and artists, I guess and art institutions are such a powerful, um, what should I call it, instrument, body, um, entity. Because first of all, if you also look at audiences, they cater to the 1%, to the rich, you know, collectors, blah, blah, they want to be involved, they contribute, they participate, but also to the rest of the 99%. So you've got the attention of everyone. So I guess art institutions, what need to do is like, it's mandatory. They just need to take a good look at themselves, first of all, and figure out how they can each and individually contribute to a, to a better world. And I guess EVEC, I mean, EVEC is not the, you know, it doesn't have the key to everything, but EVEC is trying and it's showing and we're trying to show this is possible and this is how we, you start. You, you, you hold yourself accountable. You look at yourself. You try yourself to put in practice everything you've heard about or um, what you know you should put in practice. And, and Kathleen, I think she was mentioning, you know, um, maybe preferencing train travels to um, airplane travels. Small gestures that can, you know, if all art institutions were institutions were to do that, it would make it would mean a big deal. Um, and then, of course, artists. What is their role? I mean, artists. They they've been <laughs> trying to tell <laughs> tell us so many things for such a long time, you know. And it, it you just 
listening was um, apparently something hard for many of us to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're one of the most important part, at least for, for me, because, you know, I'm, I'm working in the art world um, and art is about life. So it's, it's, the role is crucial. I mean, I don't know what anything would be without artists and art. Um, so yeah, I guess the, the very interesting thing to, for me to watch right now is how art institutions react, program, and most, most interestingly, how they react to mistakes. When they, when they do a mistake, because we all do mistakes, right? And this is how we learn, it's a process. But, but I've seen so very often that this attitude of, I can't do anything wrong, you know? And then from one thing, you, you end up doing something even of a bigger mistake and whatever. So I guess it's, it's important to, to take a good look at yourself as an art institution. Thank you, Adriana. How very true to say that audience spots when you are not genuine. You can never trick your audience. They just, they kind of feel the energy, right? Um, I would like to talk um, with you about your uh, plans for 2023. So next year, um, we're actually going to launch a residency program. And this has been a long kind of time in the thinking about residencies because eBook and Nukenvala is kind of in this perfect location for residencies, we always felt, being kind of on the periphery of the city. It's a 30-minute train journey from Berlin to Nukenvala, and, and you really feel like you're coming out of the city. It really feels like an exodus. And it's a very, very quiet place, Nukenvala. You know, you walk the streets and there aren't that many people around. Um, so I think when we have an artist studio program here, and when artists come here, they've often said, you know, it's so great working here because you don't have the distraction of the city and you can really just come and work and think. So it's been a long term plan of ours to launch a residency programme and we'll be doing that next year and it's called the Sustainable Institution and that'll be in partnership with Luma in Arles and Rupert in Vilnius and it will be a four phase project and um, so the first phase will be a symposium series and that will be one in Luma, one at Rupert and one at Evirk and each symposium will really um, dig into kind of what what can we do to create sustainable institutions of the future what are the problems how can we obfuscate those in the future um, and then the next phase will be the actual artists and residency program and this will be an open call to international artists um, to propose a material prototype for sustainable exhibition making so that could possibly be you know sustainable exhibition partitions or perhaps sustainable um, humidity controls um, or kind of a performance that speaks about kind of sustainability. So it's quite open. Um, and then they, those artists, there's three artists, one will go to Luma, one will go to Eva, and one will go to Rupert. And they will be guided by a steering committee that will be composed of kind of ecological experts that as diverse kind of scientists, technologists, but also more established artists who have kind of ecology as one of their core missions. Um, and they will be guided through that process to try and develop these material prototypes. Meanwhile, all of this information will be gathered and hosted on this digital toolkit, online digital toolkit. And um, so all the symposium information will be there. And then there'll be a live forum for the public to kind of engage in this process. And then we're also working with Gallery Climate Coalition, who you probably know, but um, they, they have kind of as their agenda is to kind of improve the ecological impact of galleries throughout the world, really. They've got wings in LA and China and Berlin, 
and London. Um, and they're going to integrate a carbon calculator into the toolkit. So the project's carbon impact will be calculated live. So whenever we do anything that, that will be calculated the carbon and the aspiration is to do it carbon neutral. So is it possible to do this very international ambitious programming responsibly? We're yet to find out. <laughs> and then uh, the exhibition will tour um, to a location to be confirmed, but that will be outside of those three European locations as well. So that's one of the residencies, and then we've also launched another residency program in collaboration with Eon Stiftung, um, which is inviting artists to consider energy in its kind of greatest thematic concerns. So, and the two artists have been just recently been awarded, and they are Lina von Gerdeke and Antoinette uh, Utundi-Oni. And both of those artists' proposals, they were selected out of um, 300 artists. And they're very action-led as well. Um, so Lena is going to produce outdoor sculptures that actually extract carbon from the atmosphere, working with this material called olivine. And so when it, the olivine interacts with rainwater, it emits um, this material that then um, takes out the carbon from the atmosphere. So we'll hopefully be showing those next year in the outdoor spaces of Evirk. And Antoinette is working in collaboration with the Yinka Shonibari studio in Nigeria. And she's going to be exploring um, the potential of water hyacinths as a kind of new biofuel material. But then it also has the capacity to produce this kind of fibrous material. So I think what was so inspiring about those two artists, they were so, they were so action led, you know, they really wanted to create an impact, do something. And I think that's one of Evert's missions as well is to, to just, as Adriana was saying, you know, Perhaps we're not perfect, but we're trying something. Let's try and be action-led. It's enough talking about it. It's enough of these kind of artistic gestures. Let's actually try and make a change. And um, so those, those are, that's the residency program. Then we also have an exhibition program uh, organized for next year. So um, we'll be working with an emerging British artist called Kira Frey, and she's gonna be doing a large scale uh, commission for our turbine hall. And she has this very idiosyncratic, refreshing, um, approach to sculpture, she's a metal worker and her works are figurative, but then also very abstract. And um, so she'll be producing 16 new works for the Turbine Hall and that will open in spring. Thank you, Helen. The Sustainable Institution residencies and your uh, collaborations with other institutions sound so significant. Um, trying to make ambitious projects responsibly and providing platform to action-led artists. Ladies, in the hyper-connected world of today, museums and institutions join the trend. How do you see the progress of digital communication in the art world in combating climate change and biodiversity loss? And how does your space contribute to the uh, global conversation on offsetting carbon footprint, which you spoke about um, already, but it's always good to further highlight on this topic? Um, I guess... You know, the pandemic brought this wave of digital content, no? And it was an overflow. And we also at Ever rode that wave a bit. But I tell you, we always had this thought in our heads, you know, like Katarina and Hannah were saying, we, 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 we tend to be very reflexive. Um, reflective, sorry. Um, is it... How, how can you translate something that is not meant for the digital? How can you translate it into the digital? Is it worth it? Is it, is it a new language that is worth exploring or should we um, reconsider, you know? So there were, we had a podcast series 
um, the archive show that Katarina mentioned. We also video documented it. So basically all the performances or workshops you can find on, online. But of course there's always gonna be a difference. Um, but the thing is this digital overflow, this overflow of digital content can also cause fatigue. And I guess climate change is not a trend and it's not, it's not a buzzword and it shouldn't be a buzzword, although it kind of sometimes is and used as such. But um, it's, it's a real responsibility uh, of all of us and not only, you know, us little ones, but also corporations and governments. And we, we can't let it be transformed into a trend and then have it done with. So we do take uh, digital content very seriously, but a bit, we think about it a bit differently, let's say in the sense, you know, for, for example, the sustainable institution, we want to produce a toolkit and we understand digitality, be it being digital as making it accessible, not just creating something for the digital realm. So you have, you know, what to do when you're bored and you want to scroll, because that, that's that defeats the purpose, right? So in a sense, that could also be connected to this whole idea of slowing down because digital, you say digital and then immediately you have, you know, like, what was it? The goldfish attention span, you know? So we also have to fight that because anything that goes digital, you, you don't have the patience for, although it could be important information. So we're, we're let's say, fighting on that, um, on that area as well, yeah. Anything you want to add, ladies? Because I see you might have. Um, I mean, I guess, yeah, it was just an interest, just to echo what you're saying, Adriana, it was just an interesting moment when the pandemic hit and it suddenly exposed the kind of fragility of all these institutions, you know, that they had to keep programming in order to get the funding and exactly. how precarious that economic system is, actually. Um, and how... And then it just forces you into this kind of hamster wheel. And I felt that we had an opportunity here to maybe not fall into that trap because we had this kind of like we're not we're not fully funded by the sales of electricity, but we, we were kind of on a base zero. So we were able to still stay in a warm building and still kind of operate and still talk to each other, but not be forced into creating kind of digital content. So we just took a moment to kind of pause and think about what we wanted the future of eWork to be, I guess, and who we wanted to be and how we wanted to react. And, and I think that's where the, the concept of slow curating really um, percolated from. You know, we were thinking, what, what can happen if we slow down? What can happen if we don't just jump? Or what we don't happen if we don't just have kind of the pressure of extreme programming, you know, an exhibition every week or, you know, new content, like how could it be different, I guess? Um, but yeah, it's not, I guess it's very nuanced. It's not black, black and white, is it? So many complications in the kind of web of the art world that we've created. <laughs> I also realized, Farah, that I, I, I mean, I have a very, we have a very direct, simple answer to, you know, how we contribute, how ever contributes to um, offset, offsetting the carbon footprint. Well, we produce Kunststrom, 
which you're invited to also use. I mean, especially if you're in Germany, you know, you can sign up and become our client, <laughs> our customer, which means you'll be using um, good energy. This is truly fascinating. Thank you, Adriana. I will look it up on your website and I'm inviting all our listeners to do so as well. Sadly, our conversation is coming to an end and I can't wait to ask my final question to all three of you. As there are four curators in this online room, including myself, I would like to finish this conversation with a question about the definition for a curator in today's troubled world. What are the challenges that you face as curators? What you ideally want to achieve when curating an exhibition and what would you hope that people experience from your curatorial statements? Maybe I'll start with just kind of a very uh, contextual approach to that question in relation to Luckenwalder. Um, I think one of the greatest challenges that we face here is trying to create a very ambitious international programme, but that is also extremely accessible to the local community. Um, I mean, we're in former East Germany with the first cultural institution here. Um, there's a real desire for people to come here, but there's also a fear of what contemporary art is and a fear that it's not for them. And I'm really, we're all really kind of concerned and attentive to making sure that we're not kind of contemporary art satellite in the middle of Brandenburg, that we're very welcoming or very accessible. And that this is public property, this building, you know, that it does feel like anybody who lives in Luckenwalder can come inside. It's their building, it's not ours, you know. And I think it, because it was, it is a city, it's a municipal building, you know, it was always the public property, but that, so that they feel that they can come whenever. And the way we do that is to, you know, try and keep all of our exhibitions free, try and have a very barrierless access to contemporary art. But then also through the programming, you know, what, what can we program that is exciting and unique um, to people here, not, not removing the kind of eye from the kind of curating, not, not just what we want to see happen, what, what do other people want to see? And I think Sun and Sea was a very good example of that. You know, it's a very accessible, moving work on so many levels. And, you know, it was really moving to see people leaving that piece. You know, my son's Kita kindergarten teacher came and I saw her leaving almost in tears. And, you know, that's that was really an amazing moment. And, um, and then the, there was Bauhaus Swimming Pool about to take on sort of to help programming of the space in the future. We really want that to be community led. So yes, we, we will be able to program what we would like to see, you know, so things like Sun and Sea, but then also we're going to open up to the community. So if, if the local school wants to do a disco there or perhaps a flea market or a, a gig by someone in Luckenbald, you know, it's kind of, it'll be community led programming, I guess. So what can that look like? I think that's one of my biggest challenges as a curator. Okay, I guess I I go next. <laughs> Firstly, I think, um, you know, you started by saying a curator in today's troubled world. I do think, you know, the world has is always troubled and there are always things we had to have to or will have to negotiate in the future. You know, if it's about um, paying attention to all these aspects around us and being sensitive and, you know, absorbing it and taking it in and reflecting on it. But um, speaking from my own path, which has led me to work in Europe, but also in the UK and commercial galleries and museums. But what I really am interested in is when art steps outside of the confined gallery spaces, you know, and I guess 
I I was involved in co-creating a performance festival in London and it was just magical finding these spaces, appropriate spaces, you know, them becoming hosts for these artists for um, ephemeral time, you know, and and that has been a really, really valuable experience and I guess has brought me to the curatorial practice I have today. You know, I see myself more as a cultural producer rather than, you know, anything else. So often describe it as, uh, you know, finding solutions, you know, um, finding solutions every single day for certain things. So, and the last couple of years really have been shaped by uh, working in the public realm, you know, placing art in the public space, working with communities and cities, whether this is about developing a temporary program or more permanent installations that will animate a specific area or a specific space, you know, that delves into the history of the site, but also in the community and unravels all these different stories and untold stories even. And I think this is where the magic happens, you know? And for me, it's very much about this sudden encounter with art when it's when you least expect it, you know? It can be a transformative experience. It can be a, a shocking experience. It can be of your dislike. It can be a dramatic one, it's, but also it can be very simply a joyful one, you know? and. For me, it's not just about placing artwork in one place, in one space. It's about taking into consideration your surrounding, your environment, the cities, the places, the communities. They are always in constant flux and so are all the memories attached to it. So, um, you know, often it's not so much who actually the artist is. It's more about what it does to you in this very, very moment of encountering it. So I'm bringing all of this into this curatorial practice, I suppose, you know, the incidental, but also what Helen said, making it accessible as much as possible to everyone. So, and I guess I'm also interested in creating cultural bridges, you know, especially as a German living in the UK with going through the whole disaster of Brexit and what it does to culture. So that's really something at the heart, you know, maintaining these bridges to other countries and doing this constant exchange. Yes. Um, well, in my point of view, this this whole curator position is such a shape shape shifting one that it's so fluid and and I guess this is what I love most about it. So I will stay away from defining it because I guess yeah, it's way more interesting to keep it open and it it, it needs to be open. It stays open. This kind of defines it if you want. But um, there's one, one quote that I keep thinking about when, whenever I think about curating. And although I don't usually like to quote men because I'm aware I need to do more work and find women to quote because they've done a lot of work and research and nobody takes the time to you know, dig a bit more. But it was Antonio Gramsci that said, you know, the time of the interregnum, the old is dying, but the new cannot be born. And what I feel that I need to do is contribute to helping this new being born. Thank you so much, ladies, for this uh, genuine answers. Just to kind of sum up this inspiring chat we had, Helen, I think uh, many professionals 
um, that are listening to this conversation right now could relate to your words about the fear of contemporary art and the challenge of making it accessible and relevant to its immediate community. And uh, Katharina, I feel personally very close to what you said about building cultural bridges as someone coming from a diverse background myself. And finally, Adriana, how meaningful it is to finish this chat with the quote by Antonio Gramsci. And I also agree with you um, on the idea of curator's definition remaining fluid. And if I am ever asked this question, I always say as a curator, I'm more of an agent, an agent for cultural exchange with a challenge to make that intercultural translation as smooth as possible, an agent contributing to change of collecting habits, switching from collecting objects to collecting processes, as you, Helen, support with your artist-led projects. And finally, this podcast Uh, that is an integral part of this agency to make this conversation be heard by as many as possible, raising awareness of your inspiring work, which will further motivate our listeners, especially as you, Adriana mentioned, female professionals. So I'm hoping that young ladies will listen to this, get inspired that everything is possible following your path and joining this global female powerhouse. Thank you to Farid and also keep it up with, with the podcast. I've listened to quite a few and it's fantastic work. Very, very interesting. Thank you so much, Adriana, for your kind words. I would like to notice that eWork is running a music festival in October, uh, which you should check out, as well as their eventful program. I am very grateful for your time and this passionate, genuine conversation. Our audience, as they always do, will definitely feel it. <laughs>